a couple of you are finishing up, let me read from our course objectives when we started the year here. This will be an integrative course. We'll include the history of Western civilization, art history, philosophy of science, religion, and ethics, reading comprehension and interpretation of literature, composition, and speech. We will cover a history of Western civilization from the Roman Empire up to the present day with a special focus on art history. In order to understand competing worldviews and the role worldview plays in forming ethics in our culture. This course will utilize all of Francis Schaeffer's book, How Should We Then Live, along with the study guide and DVD. We'll also be learning how to study and teach the Bible from David Reed's book, Study to Show Yourself Approved, with the accompanying study guide. <clears throat> so, mission accomplished. I'm pretty excited about what we were able to cover this year. I think it is really foundational, important history for you to be able to understand worldview and the place there you are in history, understanding the Christian roots of Western civilization and all the good things that have come from the Reformation and the Renaissance. Don't want to completely undersell the Renaissance. Um, but yeah, Reformation Christianity really did a lot of wonderful things uh, for science, did a lot of wonderful things for art, did a lot of wonderful things for the uh, ethics of culture. And using guys like William Wilberforce as examples, now you've got more tools in your tool belt to be able to help people who are being lied to and they're not being taught this history and they're being taught uh, falsehoods about Western civilization and Christianity's impact on the world. Uh, you'll have an opportunity to shine the light and shed some truth on the matter. So very useful, not only for your understanding of history, but also for apologetics purposes, which is what Francis Schaeffer had in mind when he put the book together. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, grade the exams. Exchange with somebody else so you can put your name up there as who is grading it next to the name of the person who took the test. As we go through the exam, if you have any comments or questions, feel free to have some discussion here. I'm going to throw a few thoughts in as we go along. So, section number one, write the philosophical term under the matching definition below. The study of right and wrong, good and bad, moral judgment, Wesley? Ethics. Ethics, that's right. Ethics is an important area of study in philosophy and also in theology. And I think that we as Christians have taken for granted of too long the ethics of Judeo-Christian worldview. And the world has borrowed Judeo-Christian ethics. And so even the, the secularists and the humanists in Western civilization for the last couple hundred years were largely Christian in their view of ethics. And they thought they could be good without God. Well, now they've, they've gone way away from Christian ethics. And so... Even the church is moving away from Christian ethics with young people growing up in a secular society with, with humanistic ethics that are very different from biblical ethics. And so I think a study of ethics is one thing that the, we as Christians need to, to focus on once again. And Wayne Grudem has an excellent book on ethics, rather large book. And if you're looking for an introduction to Christian ethics, then I suggest Wayne Grudem's book on ethics. You could jot that down as a book recommendation. Very important. Letter B, Sam, the study of the nature and being of reality and its origin and structure. That's 
Metaphysics. That's right, metaphysics. Answering the question of what is real? And how do we, how do we understand the reality of the physical world, the mental world, the spiritual world, uh, all of that. Uh, uh, but really, metaphysics very often just focuses on the physical world, but uh, it needs to focus on those other things as well, because the spiritual world is actually more real, if you ask my opinion, than the physical world. Isaac, letter C, the belief that there is a God and that he is noble and involved in the world. Theism. That's right, theism. And in order to be a true theist, not only do you want to believe that there is a God, but you want to believe that God is the most important. I'd say true theism is recognizing not just God's existence, but his all-importance. It's, it's, a, it's a logical consequence of God's existence, but one that we often overlook. And people are just like, oh yeah, God exists, but then they live like he's not important. Not really true theism. Uh, letter D, Lucas, freedom from all external constraints, independence consisting of self-determination. Autonomy, yes. First uh, John says that sin is lawlessness. And so if you are your own law, autonomy means self-law. If you are your own law, then you are independent from any man-made rules. You're independent from God's rules. And that is the essence of sin in God's sight, is that I'm my own master, which just goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Autonomy. That kind of autonomy is a, an evil thing. It's sin. Uh, letter E, the branch of philosophy that deals with knowing and the methods of obtaining knowledge, Nicholas? Epistemology. Epistemology. Epistemology was very important to me when I was in college, living in a relativistic society where they really say, you know, what is truth, like Pilate said to Jesus 2,000 years ago. So being able to know what is truth and if there is such a thing as truth and that God's word is truth and that God speaks and communicates clearly. All of that falls under the area of a Christian epistemology. Very important part of science, uh, of philosophy, I should say. Very important part of philosophy. All right, come over here to the ladies and we'll start with Jamie. Uh, the view that truth is relative and not absolute, it varies from people to people and time to time. Relativism. Relativism, yep. Yeah. Tying in with what I was just going off on epistemology. That's why epistemology is so important, because you live among a bunch of relativists. All right, and then letter G, seeking knowledge and wisdom through understanding the nature of the universe, man, ethics, art, love, purpose, etc. Philosophy. Philosophy. Now, notice that God is not on the list. Seeking knowledge and wisdom through understanding the nature of God is not a part of a traditional definition of philosophy. We tend to think of philosophy and theology as separate disciplines. And that's just by tradition, doesn't have to be that way. If you love wisdom, then the most important element of wisdom is to fear God, according to Proverbs. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And to fear God, you need to know God, have some theology. So I think there's kind of an artificial distinction here that has been created by the secularists between philosophy and theology, but whatever. We can run with it. We can say that theology and philosophy are the king and queen of the sciences, theology being king, philosophy being queen. Uh, the two most important pieces on the chessboard when it comes to human knowledge and understanding. All right, and then letter H, Daria, the system of philosophy based upon human reason, actions, and motives without concern of deity or supernatural phenomena. Humanism, yeah. And you could say secular humanism. Uh, here we have a, a humanism that is secular, and it's not concerned about God or the supernatural. That's secular humanism. All right. 
Any questions about the first section? Any comments? Just put uh, how many wrong next to letter uh, one, uh, section one up there, and then you'll total up the number wrong at the end uh, for each section. Yeah. Um, just kind of in general, like throughout the test, if there's a question that is not answered, the margin is wrong. Yep. Yeah. All right, so then section two, continuing on here, Naomi. Uh, fourth century leader of the church in Milan who promoted a biblical form of Christianity while also valuing classical learning. The living Christian art and the mosaics of the church in Milan show how the early church art represented real people instead of mere symbols. Yes, Ambrose. Uh, one of my favorite stories about Ambrose is he was a generation older than Augustine, and when Augustine became a Christian, he wrote a letter to Ambrose asking him what should be my first uh, subject of study in the Bible, and Ambrose wrote back to Augustine and said, uh, study Isaiah. If you understand Isaiah, you'll understand the whole Bible. And Augustine began to study Isaiah, and he had no, no idea what it was saying, because you kind of need some other parts of the Bible before you can understand Isaiah. So Ambrose had a good thought that if you understand Isaiah, you understand the whole Bible, but it's not necessarily the best place to start uh, because there's some knowledge you need in order to understand Isaiah. But I love Isaiah, so I always remember that about Augustine and Ambrose. All right, and then next one, we've got the 13th century theologian who highly valued the works of Aristotle and incorporated Aristotelian thought into Christianity. Aquinas. Yep, that's Thomas Aquinas. Now... If you hear someone described as a Thomist, that means that they are a follower of the teaching and methodologies of Thomas Aquinas. We don't call them Aquinian, uh, for whatever reason. We call them Thomists. And Thomism is actually on the rise again in the Protestant church. There's a lot of Protestants that are, are falling in love with, with Thomas Aquinas. That's not been my experience of Thomas Aquinas. I don't know why people love Thomas Aquinas. I had a seminary assignment where I was supposed to read a section of Aquinas and write a paper on it. And I was going through some old files this week and I came across that paper. And I was looking at, oh yeah, what was my impression of Thomas Aquinas back in seminary? And my impression was not very good. He came to the same of the same conclusions that I came to, but he used a very different methodology of getting there. He was not very biblical in his thinking. He seldom quoted the Bible. He mostly quoted other theologians. He liked Augustine a lot. Um, so I'm not a Thomist. Uh, I'm sure Aquinas and I would agree on a lot of things, both being Christians, but I don't recommend you becoming a Thomist either. Letter C. He became king of the Franks in 768, Franks, Franks, I don't know, whatever, and was crowned emperor of the Holy Roman Empire in 800 AD. More closely uniting church power and state power, he also encouraged learning and art, laying a base for a unified Christian culture in Western Europe. Ariana? Charlemagne? Yes, Charlemagne, which means Charles the Great. Magna means great. Uh, your magnum opus is your great work. So Charlemagne is Charles the Great. And... He really laid the foundation for Christendom 1.0. And Christendom 1.0 kind of ended when the secularists and the humanists took over and the postmodernists have taken over. And so we've kind of become a, a post-Christian society. And now Christians are starting to talk about, well, Christian nationalism. I don't know if you've heard anybody talking about Christian nationalism and Christian nation building. And uh, there was a recent discussion between a couple of theologians as to whether or not we need a Christendom 2.0. Uh, maybe the first Christendom had some flaws and some wrong things in its foundation. Maybe we could do a better job of creating a Christendom 
2.0, a Christian kingdom, a Christian uh, empire. Um, I'll let you think about whether or not Christendom 2.0 is a good idea. Letter D. Study of this philosopher had been forbidden by Pope Urban IV. In the fresco of the School of Athens by Raphael, his fingers point down to the earth. So one pope forbids him, the next one hires, not the next, but a later one, hires Raphael to paint him in, in you know, the, the, the home of the pope there in uh, the Vatican. Uh, who is that? Aristotle. That's right, Aristotle. Now in the painting, uh, if, if Aristotle's pointing down, who's pointing up? Yes, Plato. Good. Uh, who was Plato's teacher? Socrates. Uh -huh. Good. All right, then letter E. Iris, 14th century Oxford professor who began to translate the Bible into English. John Yep, Wycliffe. Uh, now, Wycliffe translated from the Latin, if I recall, to the English. He was not a Greek or Hebrew scholar. He translated from the Latin Vulgate. And that's better than nothing, but I'm glad that later on guys came along who did study the Greek and the Hebrew and translated it from the original languages into English, like William Tyndale. Tyndale was a, a great Bible translator, a great scholar in the original languages. All right, then uh, mark down how many wrong in section two, and let's go on to section three. And we'll come to Petra here. Section three. Write the term under the matching definition. This hymn book revitalized the practice of congregational singing. Geneva yes, the Geneva Psalter. Uh, who was the reformer in Geneva? Yeah? Was Zwingli in Geneva? I was thinking Calvin, but maybe I'm wrong. Where was Calvin? Was Calvin in Geneva? What's that? I have no idea. Okay. Well, I think it might have been Calvin. Um, but the Psalter is the Psalms put into musical form, and then they would sing the Psalms. So Psalter, Psalm, see the, the, the root word there. And this is part of the Reformation that uh, now it's, it's more of a priesthood of the believer. That's one of the key concepts of the Reformation. And so congregational singing became an important part of the worship service, which was not an important part of the worship service in the medieval Catholic Church. I don't think it's a big part of the Catholic Church today either. Letter B, Elise Ankley. Dante's work of fiction, written in the vernacular, well, you know what vernacular means? The common language uh, wasn't written in Latin, it was written in uh, the language that people actually spoke. Dante's work of fiction, written in the vernacular, explores heaven and hell from a Christian viewpoint mixed with a classical pagan perspective. Yes, and there's two parts to the Divine Comedy. Anybody know the two parts? There's the Paradiso and the Inferno. The view of heaven and the view of hell. So, that's an interesting work. I have not read it. I've only read the introduction and a few parts. Anybody here read the Divine Comedy? You probably have to read it in like an updated version because the vernacular has changed a lot since his time. <laughs> Letter C, Elise Schmidt. This 1432 altarpiece painting by Jan van Eyck shows rich and poor coming to Christ who is alive on the altar. Adoration of the Lamb? Yes, the Adoration of the Lamb. Um, 
Letter D, coming back over to Wesley. Raphael painted this fresco in the Vatican between 1509 and 1511. School of Athens. Yes, back to the School of Athens. We've had a couple of questions on that. And how do you remember Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle? Spa. Spa. S-P-A. Got to go to the Greek spa and do some philosophy. Letter F, Isaac. Salvation by grace alone, a key tenet of the Reformation. Yes, Sola Gratia. And what are some of the other solas? Five solas of the Reformation? Um, yep. Sola Fide. Sola Fide, good. Anyone else? Yep. Solus Christus. Solus Christus, good. Even got the right ending on there. Sola Scriptura, yeah, I haven't mentioned that one yet. Sola Deo Gloria. Good. Soli Deo Gloria. Great uh, summary of the Reformation doctrines. Of course, I think the priesthood of the believer would make a great sixth one, but there's, that's not a soul. I don't know how you'd work that one in. All right, so any questions on chapters 3 through 5 in section 3? Let's go on to section 4 then. Sam? The ultimate Renaissance man who found that humanism leads to pessimism. Yes, one of the turtles. And... Letter B, Lucas, his statue of David is more a humanist work than a Christian work of art. Yeah, so it's important to recognize that even early on here in the Renaissance, there's this, this strong humanist stream. So that even though they're using Christian words and they're living in a Christian culture, they're not really Christian. They're, they're more of a humanist type of approach to life. And so I, I, I wouldn't expect to see a guy like Michelangelo in heaven, uh, but never know. Always hope. Alright, Nicholas, letter C. The Italian artist who restored nature to a proper place in visual art, yet his human figures always seem to be standing on tiptoes. Yes. Uh, at least, I mean, Clarissa pointed out Giotto has two T's in his name, so tiptoe Giotto. <laughs> and it rhymes. Alright, back to Jamie. The Italian architect who shifted the emphasis from the Gothic back to the classical style. His works include the Foundling Hospital and the Cathedral in Florence. Yeah, good old Bruno. Bruno Leschi, uh, I would guess is the pronunciation, although I don't speak Italian. Anybody here study Italian? No? All right, and then Laurie, letter E. This Christian humanist published a Greek New Testament. Erasmus. Yes, Erasmus. Uh, Martin Luther used his Greek New Testament to translate the Bible into English. William Tyndale probably used Erasmus's Greek New Testament also. So, uh, even though I don't know that Erasmus was a believer, he did a lot of great work. And the great cry of the Renaissance in Latin was ad fontes. Anybody know what ad fontes means? Ad means to or towards. Fontes means the fountain or the source. So, to the sources. So, they felt like they'd gotten too far away from the source of Christianity, the Bible. And they felt that they'd gotten too far away from the arts and the... the uh, classical styles, so they were going back to the, the classical and back to the Bible, the Ad Pontes, and Erasmus went back to the source, many of the Greek New Testament, so that's what he did. Letter F, his painting of the cross of Christ contains a self-portrait and the man who raises the cross, Darien. Yes, Rembrandt. And that's a good place for a self-portrait, I think uh, that's, that's a humble place to recognize that 
that you are responsible for the death of Christ. And so that seems to be a confession of, of sin, which is uh, where we should be when we're painting the cross. All right, and then back to Naomi, uh, section five. Any questions on section four? All right, letter A. This authoritarian ruled during the reign of terror in France. Reign of terror, great. Good job, buddy. With his secret police arresting many, leading to 40,000 executions, he was himself executed in 1794. Robespierre. Yes, Robespierre. What a villain. Uh, not everything that is called progress is progress, as Robespierre exemplifies. All right, then letter B. His great work on astronomy was published after his death in 1540 on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres. Who was that? Okay, thanks, Lainey. Copernicus. And he then is responsible for the Copernican revolution. What's the Copernican revolution? A revolution in astronomy. Yep. Yes, right. So the Copernican Revolution is the sun is the center of the solar system, not the earth. Um, you can see how people would think that the earth was the center because you look up and everything's moving around the earth in the sky. You can chart the, the stars as they do their circle. and The sun goes around and the moon goes around. It, it looks like we're the center. But the math that Copernicus did proved, no, we're not. That uh, the sun is the center. And that's why he wrote his book on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres beginning our understanding of modern astronomy. All right, and then letter C, uh, where are we? Naomi, he worked tirelessly in the British Parliament to make the slave trade illegal in Britain. Slavery was therefore outlawed in all the British colonies in 1834. William Wilberforce. Yes, the forceful man, William Wilberforce, a force to be reckoned with. And then letter D, Clarissa, this Lord Chancellor of England, born in 1561, stressed careful observation and a systematic collection of information to unlock nature's secrets. And this could be called the major prophet of the scientific revolution. Oh, yes, Lord Francis. Iris, who discovered the laws of gravity and wrote the mathematical principles of natural philosophy in 1687 and also discovered the speed of sound. Yes, the man, Isaac Newton. We like Isaac Newton. Petra, who wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848, which also pointed out that marriage is a part of the oppression of capitalism. Yes, boo, this, uh, Newton the hero, Marx the villain. Uh, Newton's on the stage, you know, we're all cheering, and then Marx comes on the stage, boo, throwing stuff at us. I told Clarissa this week that Marx was known as a smelly man. He, he, he stank. And uh, he was also a terrible dad and a terrible husband. Uh, just an all-around bad person. Arrogant, uh, highly intelligent, but just the worst. <clears throat> ah! You <No>, personally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I feel like it sometimes. Uh, his spirit is all around us. It stinks as well. Uh, chapter 6. Uh, all right, so we'll start with letter A there. Elise, issued in 1789, this document attempted to establish a purely humanistic basis for rights. Declaration of the rights of man. Uh, yeah, I love it when the, the word is in the definition. Rights, rights, pretty easy. 
Um, I changed that one slightly from the original quiz. Uh, instead of saying it established, I said attempted to establish because it didn't do a very good job. And human rights in the French Revolution were kind of trampled on all over the place. Alright, so then letter B, uh, Elise Schmidt, the Bolshevik takeover of Russia inspired by the communist writings of Vladimir Lenin. It did not lead to a communist utopia, but a dictatorship by a small elite. The Yes, the October Revolution. And then after Lenin, you've got guys like Stalin, yeah, like one of the worst people ever, Stalin. He was in charge of uh, the Rus Communist Russian Party for quite a while, killed a lot of people. And then later on, you had some better leaders like Mikhail Gorbachev. Gorbachev uh, is the one who's largely responsible for the end of communism in the Soviet Union and allowing the oppressed nations that were a part of the Soviet Union, their independence, so that you no longer have the Soviet Union, but then you have Russia, and then the Ukraine broke off, and you had a bunch of other uh, states that broke off. And that was when I was in high school uh, that, uh, that that happened, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And I, I remember Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan and all of those uh, important things happening in my lifetime, the end of that experiment of communism in Russia. Now Russia still has an authoritarian government, but, oh well. Letter C. This book, written by Francis Bacon in 1620, stated, Man by the fall fell at the same time from his state of innocence and from his dominion over creation. Both of these losses, however, can even in this life be in some parts repaired, the former by religion and faith, the latter by the arts and uh, sciences. And what was that book? Good, good pronunciation. Uh, a little bit of Latin in there for us. Anybody know what Novum Organum Scientarium would translate to in English? New. Novo is new, yeah. Organum? Yeah, I'm not sure what organum uh, means. If it's like a, a human organ uh, that you're thinking of, or you think like an instrument, like an organ. Uh, I'm not exactly sure uh, the middle part, but then you know, the Scientarium is pretty obvious. Alright, then letter D. Back to Isaac. Samuel Rutherford published this book in 1644, greatly influencing the United States Constitution. It means the law is king. Lex Rex. And what is the alternative to the law being king? If the law is not, if the law is not king, then who's king? king. Yeah, the king is king, right? <laughs> um, and so you either have authoritarian rule by the uh, whim of the elites or the single monarch, whether you've got one or many, it doesn't really matter, or you've got the law being king. And if the, the rulers are not subject to the law, if they can break the law and there's no punishment for the rulers for breaking the law, then you no longer have Lex Rex, right? Uh, so Lex Rex is pretty important and sadly we've totally lost it. Uh, there's so much law breaking by the uh, ruling class and there's no consequences at all for them. The law is not king in the United States. Alright, so then letter E, built in 1961 to keep the citizens of communist Eastern Germany from moving to Western Germany. Sam? The Berlin Wall. Right. And what were some of the effective and inventive means of getting through or across or under or around the Berlin Wall? Anybody remember? Really short cars. Yes, the really short cars. They were fun. Uh, and what else? Yeah? Wisdom. 
Wind sailing, good, yep, from your speech. One of my favorites was the removal of the gas can from the car and then the person hid where the gas can would normally be inside the car. Snuck across to the checkpoint. Checkpoint Charlie. There's a museum in Berlin, Checkpoint Charlie, where you can go and see uh, artifacts and learn the history of some of those inventive means of crossing. All right, section seven, match the person to his description below. Letter A, this German philosopher lived from 1724 to 1804 and wrote his book, Critique of Pure Reason, in 1781. Lucas. Yes. You can't just use pure reason. You can't. Uh, even though Descartes tried to say you can uh, establish all knowledge based upon pure reason, Kant came along and said, no, Descartes, you can't. And then letter B, this Danish philosopher and theologian demonstrated that autonomous human reason will always lead to pessimism. He taught that meaning and values can only be achieved through a leap of faith. Soren Kierkegaard? Yep, Soren Kierkegaard. That's influenced a lot of Christians. There's a lot of Christians who think that you can't really demonstrate uh, what is true and that meaning and values can only be achieved through a leap of faith. You know, I just choose to believe the Bible. Uh, but that's actually not true, that uh, you can establish meaning and values not from autonomous human reasoning, but human reasoning that is dependent upon God. So the key word there is autonomous. If you have autonomous human reasoning, a secular humanist mindset, well then you will end up with this pessimism and you need this leap of faith. But if your reason is subject to God, then you can through reason and faith, working together, have a reasonable faith that is not just a leap of faith. So, Kierkegaard was wrong on that point. Letter C, he published the Phenomenology of Mind in 18... Phenomenology? Yeah, that's an interesting word. In 1807, and attempted to establish a unity between the phenomenal and the noumenal worlds. He's famous for his dialectic, keyword there, which speaks of how thesis and antithesis battle to form a new synthesis which corresponds to a view of mankind's evolving consciousness. The evolving consciousness of mankind, which led to Marxism and all kinds of problems. Uh, we can blame this guy for a lot of the evil in the world. And who was that? Let's see. Jamie? Or did I skip Nicholas? No? Back to Jamie? Yeah, skip you. Skip you? Laurie? Hegel. Yeah, that was Hegel. When you think of the dialectic, think of Hegel. Hegel's dialectic. Uh, He's the one who has this evolutionary view of mankind, very much influenced Marx. All right, then letter D. This German philosopher's early work summarized man's stance towards the natural world as being one characterized by angst, that is, a generalized anxiety. Out of this feeling of anxiety, we must make a choice as to how to live. Choice. Uh, who is that, Daria? Yes, Heidegger. Um, this is the beginning of existentialism, isn't it? Where you have the power of your choice, the power of your will. Uh, this is very satanic. Um, J John Milton wrote Paradise Lost, and Satan in Paradise Lost, uh, he says, you know, that God can cast us out of heaven into hell, but by the power of our mind, by the power of our will, we can make a, a heaven out of hell. And so uh, Satan says, I've got this indomitable will. And even though the universe is against me, or God is against me, uh, by the power of my will, I'm able to create my own consciousness. All right, so uh, 
Heidegger, yes, angst. You get a lot of angst in the, in the music and art of the world today. Uh, back in the 80s, music and art was fun. And now, now since the 90s and the 2000s, uh, music and art is just, I'm talking about popular music and art, very angsty. Yeah, interesting how it takes a while for this philosophy in the ivory tower to make its way down to the popular level. All right, letter E. This neo-Orthodox theologian's most famous work is his commentary on Romans, promoting theological existentialism as a response to theological rationalism. Who was that, Naomi? Um, Karl Barth. Yep, Karl Barth. And Karl Barth has been very influential on evangelicalism in the 20th century. So, understand this, uh, friends, kids, students. In the early 20th century, theological rationalism ruled in the academy, and it took over all the seminaries. And so the fundamentalists, people who actually believed the Bible, they had lost the battle for the seminaries, and they had to, to leave and start their new seminaries. And so all the old seminaries, like Princeton and all of that, uh, went into theological rationalism. And this all came from Germany, and then it worked its way over here. And this church actually divided during that time and, and left the theological rationalist seminaries and formed an, a new uh, denomination. And so the old mainline denominations have all, you know, pretty much died out. They're losing, they've lost like 25% of their members since the turn of the century. And they're continuing to decline because theological rationalism is a dead end. But what happened that uh, people who came out of the theological rationalism, they started to like what Barth was saying because they thought, well, Barth is against the theological rationalists and, and he has some really good things to say and he's very interesting. And so he became very influential in what is known as neo-evangelicalism. And so the evangelical movement split after it divided off from the theological liberals into a, a, a more conservative traditional historical evangelicalism that would be similar to like Calvin and the reformers, versus a neo-evangelicalism, which is very heavily influenced by Karl Barth and his existentialism. And so that's really where you see the divide among evangelicalism today. And evangelicalism has largely been taken over by neo-evangelicalism, and so it's hard for me to even identify myself as an evangelical anymore because they're just going so far away from what I think is a traditional biblical understanding of theology. There's an interesting study I looked at reading about this week, where they did a survey of uh, you know, which denominations were growing and which ones were shrinking, but instead of asking people which denomination they you know, went to church at or identified with, they asked them theological questions that would be associated with those denominations. And so they actually found that liberalism, uh, you know, and here liberalism can mean uh, existentialism or rationalism or you know, any of these types of things, was actually on the rise and was growing very rapidly. Even though the old mainline denominations were shrinking, their beliefs, their thoughts were, were growing among the new evangelical mainline. And so uh, it's interesting to see uh, the influence of guys like Bart and how people are always going to go with the next new thing and stray away from just what is written. All right, so then letter F. Sorry for that long detour. But I think it's, it's helpful, and I want to emphasize some of these things at the end of the year. All right. So, Lane, his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, 
was a premier example of theological rationalism, whereby scholars tried to remove the supernatural elements of the Bible. Yes, but you got to say it like a German. Schweitzer. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely Schweitzer. He's not Schweitzer. He's Schweitzer. Uh, we blame the Germans for a lot of this. I can do that because I'm German. Yeah, that's how it works. And then letter G. English author who published Brave New World in 1932. Later in life, he advocated for the use of drugs in order to find a meaningful existence. Yes. A brave new world. You'll hear that phrase. People will talk about that. And there'll be something crazy going on in society, and they'll say, oh, it's a brave new world. <clears throat> All right. Getting close here. Uh, number eight. His painting, Nude Descending a Staircase in 1912, is so fragmented that you cannot even see the human form in the painting. He also created ready-made art by merely signing common objects. Who is that? Clarissa? Marcel Duchamp. Marcel Duchamp. You got a name like that. You got to do crazy things like signing a stool and calling it a work of art. <clears throat> All right, then letter B. This impressionist painter's later works, such as Poplar's at Giverny, showed how reality had changed into a dream. Monet. Yes, Monet. Um, Impressionism is not all bad. Uh, it's not as bad as post-impressionism. Um, this idea that reality and dream are indistinguishable uh, came across in an old 80s song I was playing for my daughters this week, where the line says, Wide awake, the dream is over, or has it just begun? And so there's the, the 1980s rock star getting into that. Uh, the world is just a dream. And are we more real when we're asleep, or is more real when we're awake? They can't tell anymore because they've lost the touch of reality. All right, then letter C. This post-impressionist painter, whose 1906 to 1907 painting, Les Demoiselles de Avignon, marked the birth of modern art, in which a loss of humanity is notable. Where are we? Uh, Iris. No? Oh, Petra. Yes, Pablo Picasso. And here I will plug the Animaniacs. Uh, anybody ever here see Animaniacs? Watch their episode on Pablo Picasso. It's excellent. And they do a great job of making fun of modern art in that. And I'm all for making fun of modern art. All right, backside. This American artist painted by placing canvases on the floor and allowing paint to spill from cans suspended on strings in a haphazard manner, one of which recently sold at auction for $12 million. Yeah, Jackson Pollock. This is a game that the rich people play, where they just decide that something is valuable and worth a lot of money, and then the, you know the common people can't understand or see any value in it, and then they snicker and laugh about how you know they've got the inside information on on why this stupid painting is worth twelve million dollars, just because they decided it is. So whatever they decide is is what is. All right, and then letter E. He produced music that reflected his view of the universe, blind chance of confusion, devoid of meaning, mere noise. John Cage. Yes. Not music at all. So the death of God led to the death of music, as well as the death of art. Good job, philosophers. And then letter F, his poem, The Wasteland, matched a fragmented message to a fragmented form of poetry. He later became a Christian, and his approach to literature changed. Who was that, Wesley? T.S. Yes. Anyone read any T.S. Eliot yet? 
well, I'll take my literature class next year, and maybe we'll, we'll read The Wasteland. We'll see if that makes it into the, the reading list. And then letter G. His movies include The Silence and The Hour of the Wolf, 1963-1967, that's before my time, which are reflections of his belief that God is dead, and that we cannot therefore tell the difference between illusion and reality. Yep, Ingmar Bergman. I have never seen an Ingmar Bergman film. Anybody here seen one of his films? I don't imagine they're very entertaining. <laughs> I don't imagine they were very popular either. But I'm sure the, you know, the, the artsy crowd thought, oh, this is amazing. They probably got very high critic reviews. Um, all right, and then section nine here, the definitions for hermeneutics. Uh, the surrounding verses, chapters, book, and whole Bible is what, Sam? Um, hermeneutics. No, nope, the surrounding verses, chapters, books, and the whole Bible is? Sorry, uh, context. Context, yes. And then the science of determining which manuscripts are closest to the original? Good. That's B. Uh, let's just do this. All right, so E-F-I-H-G-D-A-C-B. Say it again. E-F-I-H-G-D-A-C-B. Any questions? Extra credit. Let's get this done. How many peasants were killed during the Peasants' War? Is that right? I couldn't remember. What, what's our consensus? 100,000? All right. We'll be accepting 100,000 as the correct answer. What are the three basic laws of thought? Give me one. Law of identity. Law of identity. Good. Another? The excluded middle, and the law of non-contradiction. Yes, you need all three to get the credit here. I couldn't remember the law of identity. For some reason, it was escaping me. It's so obvious. That's why it's so hard to remember. All right, then we had a couple questions on Tyndale and the movie on his life. Why did Tyndale prefer the term congregation to church when he translated the Greek word ekklesia? Yeah? Uh, the people over an organization. Good. Yeah. So church had the idea of the Roman hierarchy, the organization, whereas he thought ekklesia uh, needed to connote to the people more the idea of the, the body of believers, the, the Christians. And so congregation was his preferred translation there. Maybe we should go back to that. I think maybe Tyndale was on to something there. Uh, number four, what was Tyndale's final prayer before he died? Anybody know? Yeah? Open the King of England's eyes. Yes, open the King of England's eyes. And how was that prayer answered? You know? Um, the Bible's reprinted. Yeah, the King of England ordered that every church in England should have an English Bible uh, in, in it for the people. So, pretty cool that the, the king who executed Tyndale for translating the Bible later ordered that all the churches should have a Bible of them in English. All right, way to go, king. Way to be consistent. Uh, <laughs> number five, how, what was the original language of the New Testament? Anyone? Greek. Greek, yep. And about how many manuscripts of the original language of the New Testament do we have? Uh, more than 5,000. Yeah, letter C. And we're still finding more. Now, there's very few early manuscripts. So it's not like you know we have 5,000 from the first 500 years of the church. 
Most of those 5,000 are from the Middle Ages, and they all basically are the same thing. But we do have a lot, and we do have a lot of early stuff. And not only do we have great early manuscripts, but we've also got the, the translations into other languages. We've got quotations in the Church Fathers. And so we've got an abundance of material to establish the original text of the Greek New Testament with a high degree of accuracy and certainty. Number seven, at what Catholic council were the apocryphal books added to the Catholic canon? Is it the Feast of Nope. That was Trent, the Council of Trent. You got it? Yep. And then we got three riddles. Uh, riddle me this. The more you take, the more you leave behind. Footsteps. Footsteps. The more you take away, the more I become. A hole, yeah, dirt from the hole. And then what runs around the whole yard without moving? A fence. A fence, yeah, easy ones. All right, so one point of extra credit for each one they got right. And then put the total number wrong at the top of the first page. And then the add uh, next to it a plus for how many extra credit they got. So I want to see the total number wrong, uh, minus whatever, and then plus uh, 1 through 10 from the extra credit. And I'm going to write it down.